podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Monday, the 8th of November, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot, five-star reviews. What Liberty Shield does is it allows you to go online, change your location and access things you're geo-blocked from. So, for example, if you're an English expat living abroad, and wanting to access Sky Go, BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, More 4, it will allow you to do that. For Irish expats, it can be RTE Player, can be Virgin Media. For US expats, Peacock, Hulu, HBO, all your sports. LibertyShield.com keeps your data safe. Allows you to access whatever you want. And if you use the code EPLPOD, E-P-L-P-O-D, at checkout, you get 50% off. Immediate download to your device. You can get using it straight away. There is a 48-hour free trial that you can check and see whether you like it or not. If you don't, no harm, no foul. If you do, you get 50% off for the year. What can go wrong? Check out LibertyShield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk for any last minute, well not last minute, we're not there yet, but any Christmas presents you're looking to get, check out Home of Hopcroft. And finally, do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops. You can find them on Etsy, just download the Etsy app to your phone, you should have it anyway. And get going. Right, folks. Um, a crazy, crazy, crazy weekend in the Premier League. Started Friday night. Southampton won. Aston Villa nil. Alan Arm- Adam Armstrong after three minutes with one of the goals of the season thus far. An absolutely outstanding hit. Gave Saints the win. Villa huffed and puffed a bit in this game, but didn't really offer any kind of threat. Didn't really look like a team with any sort of purpose. Poor at the back. A mess in midfield. Blunt up front. And this isn't just this game. This has been Villa for a while. Without pass it to Jack. Dean Smith hasn't seemed to have had any real tactical plan this season. We've seen him jump through three or four different shapes. The 4-3-3 that had worked quite well for them last season was abandoned. We saw a back three that didn't work. We saw him move away from that and go to a 4-2-3-1. And there are many ways to play a 4-2-3-1. And it's quite a complex system that can either be really good or really bad. 
And for those who watched West Ham versus Liverpool, West Ham's 4-2-3-1 is really good. Villa's is the exact opposite. It's really, really bad. There's no cohesion in midfield. There's no real strength to that team. They went with John McGinn and Marvellous Nakamba in a midfield two, neither of whom are suited to a two. McGinn is fine in a three. Nakamba will probably be fine in the championship. They got out fought in midfield. The box midfield that Southampton play under Ralph Hasenhutl just swamped them and outworked them. And Leon Bailey, Emi Buendia and Anwar Al-Ghazi are not exactly known for their defensive prowess. So none of them really, really gave a dig in and helped out, which left Southampton swarming forward in numbers and Villa backpedaling. Stuart Armstrong should have made it too. Missed an absolute sitter. Romeo had a decent chance. And Southampton were good value for the win. They were the better team on the day. They were the better set up team. Tactically, they were better. They were more disciplined. They fought harder. They ran more. And we find that over the weekend that Villa have decided enough is enough. And they've moved on from Dean Smith. Dean Smith has been sacked as Aston Villa manager. And I said in the summer, if they don't challenge for Europe, he will come under pressure. And I've said it recently that I thought the pressure was going to start building on him. Now, I didn't think it would happen this quickly, but it makes sense that it does because it's the international break gives them an opportunity to bring in a new manager and let them get some training sessions with the team, let them get acclimatized, etc. Now, there's been some backlash to this dismissal. Uh, Gary Lineker said it was a knee-jerk panic decision. So I had a look at Villa's last 38 Premier League games because that's a full season's worth. 13 wins, 7 draws, 18 defeats. That's 46 points over a full season's worth of games. And remember, they had Grealish for quite a few of those games. 46 points. Which is not really acceptable considering the talent that's there and the amount of money spent. Now, 46 points last season would have been good enough for 12th, which is one spot below where Villa finished. But Villa finished on 55 points. Because they had a really good first half of the season. Through the back half of the season, they were not playing well. Before Grealish got hurt, they weren't playing well. While he was out, they weren't playing well. And they had a couple of good wins at the end of the season. The season before, it would also have been good enough for 12th place. In 1819, it would have been good enough for 12th place. Bizarrely, it would have been good enough for 10th in 1718. It would have been good enough for eighth in 16-17. Their, their defensive record, I think, would have put them in ninth ahead of Bournemouth. In 15-16, it's 13th. So 46 points is basically lower half of the mid-table. It's 12th to 13th place 
pretty much every year is what 46 points will get you. And that's not good enough for Aston Villa. It's not good enough for this squad. It's not good enough for these owners. These owners are very, very ambitious. Wes Edens owns the Milwaukee Bucks. He was going to sack Mike Budenhoser if they didn't make the NBA Finals this past season. The two previous years, the Bucks have had the best regular season record in the NBA, gone in as a number one seed, and then they'd end up flopping in the playoffs. To the extent that this past season, the pressure on Budenhoser was, if you don't win the Eastern Conference, you're gone. And that was an Eastern Conference that included a great Philadelphia team, an all-time Brooklyn Nets offense with Durant, Harden and Kyrie Irving, three of the best six or seven offensive players in the league. The Miami Heat, the Boston Celtics, the Atlanta Hawks. A very strong Eastern Conference. Now, as luck would have it, the Bucks went on and won not only the Eastern Conference, but the NBA Finals, and Budenhoser secured his job. But that's what he had to do to secure his job. That was after being already a great team for two previous seasons. Dean Smith kept Aston Villa up the first season because of a failed call by Hawkeye. And last season they showed improvement, finishing 11th, but they had a bad second half of the season. And I think the ownership have looked at this and thought, well, okay, we're, you know, we're a bottom half team under this manager. This is what we are under this manager. Because right now, Villa are only two points outside the relegation zone. And they're in the worst form in the league. They're the only team in the league on a five-match winning streak, uh, a five-match losing streak. They're two points ahead of Burnley. And not looking particularly promising coming out of the international break when they play Brighton, Crystal Palace, who are in form, Manchester City, Leicester, and then Liverpool. Five really tough games. Very difficult to see a win among those five games in their current form. Very difficult to see anything more than maybe one or two points. Which, if Burnley were to catch a little run of form, if Watford were to find a win or two here or there, Watford at the same points as Villa, Villa would find themselves in the bottom three. And there's a really good team at Aston Villa. Really good goalkeeper, good right back, really good centre back. Meh left back, bad left sided centre back. Those two positions need to be addressed. But you've got decent players in midfield. You've got good players in attack. He hasn't integrated the new signings. Buendia and Bailey still don't know, don't look like they know what their roles are. Ings obviously is out with an injury, but he hasn't looked particularly good when played with Ollie Watkins. Dean Smith didn't seem to have a plan. He didn't seem to have any kind of tactical setup. You can look at most Premier League teams and know within two minutes what their basic tactical setup is. You could watch Aston Villa for days and not have a clue. You can close your eyes and think of most Premier League teams and picture how they play. Not with Villa. Not with Villa. 
you could when Grealish was there because it was give it to Grealish and everybody else stand back and hope for the best. And sometimes it worked. More often it didn't. And when Grealish left, well, there was no plan. So Dean Smith is gone. He will find a job soon. He won't be out of the game for long. He's a good manager. He's done very well at Villa overall. He took them from mid-table in the Championship into the Premier League, kept them in the Premier League, and then established them in mid-table. But he might just not be good enough to take them that next step. And that next step was the challenge for Europe. That's where Villa were, were hoping to get this season. Challenging for a European spot. And unfortunately for Dean Smith, he has fallen short of the target set for him. Now, the names going around at the moment, Roberto Martinez, he wouldn't be for me. I, I just don't like him as a manager. Steven Gerrard is the bookies' favourites. I'd be surprised if Gerrard took that job for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think he'd leave Rangers mid-season. I don't think he's the type that will walk out in a club mid-season. He's made a commitment to Rangers, and I think he will honour it. Number two, I'm not really sure that Villa will want him. It's very easy for the bookies to say, oh, this is who's you know the favourite. Gerrard was the favourite for the Newcastle job, but never got offered the Newcastle job. It's very, he was the favourite for the Crystal Palace job in the summer when it first became open. He never got offered the job. It's very easy for the bookies to link play, uh, managers with, with these jobs, but more often than not, there's nothing in it. I don't know that Villa would look at Gerrard, who, let's be honest, there's a lot of Liverpool fans who want Gerrard to replace Klopp in 2024. And Gerrard, I think, would take the job if offered, no matter what he's doing, anywhere else. So do Villa really want to appoint a manager that they know if he does well, he's going to leave in two years? I don't think they do. I don't think that's Villa's plan. I don't think Villa are thinking short term. I think they've got a longer term view. You've also got the issue of, is Gerard really willing to risk stepping into a job mid-season in a team that's going in the wrong direction, a team that's in bad form, talent or not, Villa are going in the wrong direction. And it is going to be a difficult task to turn around and get them into the, the echelons of the table they want to be in. I don't know that Gerrard's going to be willing to risk his stock by taking a job that could go badly. I think he'd rather come in in the summer get a pre-season under his belt, have more time to recruit and put his stamp on things. Very difficult to do that mid-season unless you're an elite level manager like a Conte. So I think Gerard will be cautious. I think Villa would be cautious. I also think you have to factor in, look, he's done well at Rangers. He did very well last season. But the first two seasons didn't go particularly well. They were a distant second in a two-horse race. Last season, Celtic fell apart. Celtic were a disgrace last season. 
It's a big part of why they won the title. They would have won the title regardless. I think they were the better team last season, but Celtic fell apart. This season, Rangers haven't been nearly as good. They haven't been good in Europe. They've been flawed domestically. And Gerard, prior to this season, had spent more than all the other clubs in the Scottish Premiership combined over his first three years at the club. And the wage bill at Rangers is more than the entire league, bar Celtic, combined. Without that massive financial advantage and the huge talent differential he has over the rest of the league, is Steven Gerrard a good manager? We don't know. We don't know. There's nothing yet to suggest that Gerrard is actually a good manager. He may well be. He may not be. But it's very difficult to judge a manager based on winning things at Celtic or Rangers. Brendan Rodgers did outstanding work at Celtic. But he got the Leicester job based on having been the Liverpool manager, not on what he did at Celtic. Neil Lennon did brilliantly at Celtic, better than Gerrard has done at Rangers. And the best job he could get when he came south of the border was Bolton, who were in the bottom half, might have been bottom six of the championship at the time. So I think clubs will be cautious with appointing somebody from Scotland. And I think Gerard's going to be cautious with where he goes. Because if it doesn't go well, whatever Premier League job he takes, if it doesn't go well, that is going to be Liverpool off the table for him. Now, I don't think he should get the job anyway. Certainly not in 2024. Personally, I don't ever want him to get the job. Because if it doesn't go well at Liverpool, it will tarnish his reputation. Especially amongst younger fans who maybe don't remember him as a player. I see a lot of Liverpool fans on social media, younger ones, who only really saw Gerrard from 2010-11 through the end of his career. And they saw a leggy, declining, limited midfield player. Brilliant on the ball, hopeless off the ball. But you see, I saw Gerrard the 10 years before that. I saw him from his debut up until that point. I saw Gerard be from about 01 to 09 an absolute force of nature. A one-man wrecking crew who could do pretty much everything. So that's the Gerard I remember. But a lot of people don't, and they don't have that. They don't hold him in as high a regard as people who saw him at his best do. In the same reason, in the same way that people who saw John Barnes play in the 90s don't regard him as highly as those who saw him in the 80s. In the same way that those that were around for Kenny Dalglish's second stint at Liverpool as manager don't remember his first stint as manager, whereas those who saw him as manager in the 80s, they know he was a great manager. Those of us lucky enough to have been around and seen him at Liverpool and at Blackburn know he was a great, great manager. The second spell didn't go well, and that tarnished his reputation and his legacy. Graeme Souness, his legacy at Liverpool should have been as the greatest captain the club ever had. 
the greatest midfielder the club ever had. Instead, it's tarnished by his time as manager. And I worry the same thing would happen to Gerrard. If I was Gerrard, I would avoid the Liverpool job. I still think Gerrard can go on and have a career as a manager and be successful if he's good enough without going to Liverpool. But I don't think Villa's the job for him. Not right now, not mid-season. Like I said earlier, I think he'll want to stay at Rangers because he's made a commitment there. I don't think he'd walk away mid-season. I don't know who Villa will go for. Paolo Fonseca's name has been mentioned because it seems like he has to be mentioned and then interviewed for every available Premier League job. But Villa have a big choice to make now. This has They have to get this one right. Um, they have to get this one right. Now, there's been some mention of the Danish manager. Um, he's got relationship with, with the sporting director at Villa. Maybe, maybe he'd be the one, but Ralph Hasselhutl's name's been mentioned. It would be a step up for him, for sure, from Southampton, but I don't know if he'll be given much consideration. John Terry's name is out there. I think that would be a disaster. Uh, Kasper Hillman, obviously, is the, the Danish manager. He's one I think worth keeping an eye on. Graham Potter would be, I think, the perfect appointment. I think it's the perfect move for him. But at the same time, he's building something at Brighton and may not want to walk away mid-season. I think Lampard would be a disaster. Nuno would be a disaster. I think they'll look above Scott Parker. And I see Thierry Henry getting odds at 25-1. to Thierry Henry is not a good football manager. Uh, Not a good football manager at all, in fact. And... um, I don't see why his name continues to get mentioned for managerial jobs. He failed quite spectacularly at Monaco and he has not done he didn't do particularly well with Montreal Impact either. In 49 ma- matches as a manager, Henri has only won 13, lost 27 and has a negative goal differential of minus four, uh, 33. 86 goals conceded in 49 games. And not with Minnows, with Monaco, with Montreal Impact. So Henri just needs to step aside and go do something else. Be a pundit, be whatever. You're not a manager. But Villa have a big decision to make. I like Hillman. I think he's done a brilliant job with the national team. Um, Whether that can translate to club football or not, I don't know. I didn't think Dean Smith would go this early. I have to say, but I'm not overly surprised. And I think it is the right decision because Villa are just, they're in an endless cycle of, of dross right now. Bad, 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 bad. Nothing good about anything to do with Aston Villa right now. Time for a change, freshen things up. Uh, moving on, and we'll rattle through the games a bit quicker from here. Burnley won. Chelsea won at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea went one up through a Kai Havertz header on 33. Brilliant cross from Reese James. Good header from Havertz. Mattia Vidra on 79 makes it 1-1. One of those FIFA goals where you draw the keeper and play it across. Basically what happened. Burnley defended well. Nick Pope made some really good saves. But Chelsea should have won this game comfortably. They dominated possession. They had 25 shots in the game. 
but only four on target. The finishing was wayward. I've seen people say they're better without Lukaku. I don't think they are. I think they play more interesting football without Lukaku. But I think if Romelu plays that game, they win it comfortably. Uh, I know I've skipped the United, the, the old Manchester derby. I will come back to it. Uh, Crystal Palace 2, Wolves 0. Really impressed with Palace in this game. Just really front-footed, really aggressive display. Comfortably the better team on the day. Now, Wolves played some decent stuff. But Palace were just very, very good. Wolf Zaha made it one after 61 minutes. Uh, Connor Cody playing Zaha on side as he latched on to James McCarthy's true ball. And Connor Gallagher with a shot that I think deflected off Connor Cody on 78 to make it two. Connor Gallagher was brilliant in this game. Absolutely brilliant. Just a really good display of front footed football. Pressing, winning the ball high up the field, getting it moving quickly. I think Palace were great value for their victory and could have won more comfortably. They, they, the, the final ball let them down a couple of times, but really good value for the, for their win. I think Vieira's done an outstanding job so far. Um, Brentford won Norwich two. Matthias Norman on six minutes with a great goal. And then Timo Puki with a penalty on 29 after he'd been put through. By a really good defence splitting pass from Matthias Norman, who was just he was comfortably the best player on the pitch on Saturday. Matthias Norman. Really, really good performance. Uh Puki was brought down, I think, by Charlie Good and got up himself and, and put the penalty away with minimal fuss. Brentford huffed and puffed a bit, but this was a really flat performance from them. Rico Henry made it two one on sixty, getting on the end of, of a deep cross from Mbuomo. But in truth, Brentford didn't deserve anything from the game. Um, Tim Krul did make a couple of good saves to his credit. So maybe you could argue Brentford having had more of the possession, more of the shots and chances. Maybe they did deserve something. But I, I really felt like once Norwich went two up, I kind of felt like I wanted them to win that game. Just to get that, you know, that burden of not having won in, I think it was 20 Premier League games out of the way. Um, we find out pretty much straight after the game that Daniel Farke has been removed as manager of Norwich. And like Dean Smith, I don't think he'll be out of work for long. I do think he will find employment fairly quickly. He does obviously leave Norwich bottom of the table. Uh, One win and two draws from 11 games is not good enough. And they haven't been good enough as a Premier League team under him. The last time they were up, they were poor, they were naive, they stuck too stringently to the way of playing and found their way back into the championships. But in four and a half years, he won the championship twice, which is really impressive. Not just to get promoted twice, to win the championship outright twice. Very, very impressive. To operate under the financial restrictions that he faced at Norwich, I think is really impressive as well. I really do. I think when you consider the first season he was there in the championship, they spent 16 million net. Okay. The second season, it's a net pro, sorry, they spent 
No, I'm wrong. Sorry. The first season he's there, they make a profit of 16 million. The second season he's there, they make a profit of 29 million. And they come up. So they're 45 million in the, in the black. And he's gotten them promoted. They come up into the Premier League and they spend little or nothing. And that spend of six million is what he was expected to work with in the Premier League. So you're 39 million in the black over his tenure. They go back down. And again, they make about 28 million in profit. So now you're at 67 million of profit over his time in charge. This summer, they've obviously spent 25 million. So you're, you know, you're around the 40, 40 plus million mark in net profit over his tenure. Two promotions, lots of good football, club far better off. And remember, not just 45 million net from, from signings or from transfers. Think of all the Premier League money that he's made by bringing them back up. It's 90 to 100 million both years. So they've made out like absolute bandits while not really backing him. And I do think both he and Stuart Weber deserve great credit for the work they've done. I can see why they've decided to move on from him. The, the Premier League form has not been good enough. I did think he'd be safe enough. I thought he'd have enough, you know, enough built up with them from the two promotions. I wonder if a lot of the criticism they were starting to face of they don't really care about being in the Premier League, they just want that Premier League money, they're, they're happy to go back down and come back up, and as long as they're never without parachute payments, they'll be fine. Maybe that started to have an impact on them. But they're going to have a tough task replacing him. Now, John Percy has reported that Frank Lampard is set to be interviewed. And I, I I just can't think of many worse ways to go. Now, fair enough, you're going to go down. Norwich are going down this season. Um, so Lampard in the championship might be fine. That's about his level. And he would get this season to work with the players. He could go into next season. The hope would be that, you know, he can have that kind of bounce back effect the way Scott Parker did maybe at Fulham. We got to know the players over a couple of months. They went down. He was already in situ, already had a feel for the group, was establishing a way of playing and could bring them straight back up. And maybe that's what they look at. But there doesn't seem to be a standout candidate for the Norwich job right now. Uh, I saw David Ornstein report that they have basically, you know, a short list of two. Lampard according to John Percy's one. He's also mentioned Dean Smith, and Dean Smith would be really interesting. And if I was Dean Smith, I'd be I'd be quite up for that job. Now, Guy thinks that job's below Dean Smith because Dean Smith's a Premier League manager. And I do agree, he is a Premier League manager, but I also think Norwich are a Premier League club. They're the 21st Premier League club. They're too good for the championship. So the idea is, if you go down with them, bring them back up, which you should be really well positioned to do. You're well used to working under a director of football, so working under Stuart Weber will be no problem and should fit right into what you're comfortable doing. Go down, bring them back up, and bring them back up better than they have been in the past two two attempts. 
There's enough talent at Norwich to keep them in the league. I do believe that. I think in Max Aaron's a right back, Giannolis or Brandon Williams at left back, a combination of Quebec, Gibson, Obabamadeli at centre back, anybody but Grant Hanley, and notable that they won their first game with Grant Hanley out of the team. Um, they've got decent keepers. Norman is, is good. Uh, Lise Malou is good. They've got Billy Gilmore still there. So they could make, you know, a decent midfield. Todd Cantwell is there. The issue is the lack of a real goal scorer. Pookie's good in the championship, decent in the Premier League, but isn't consistent enough in the Premier League to get you the goals you need. And you need to find goals from other areas. They, they brought in uh, Rashika in the summer. He can get you goals. Cantwell should be able to get you goals. They are better than foot of the table, I think. I think they are good enough to stay up if they'd started the season well. I don't think anybody could keep them up now. I think there's just too much rot sort of has set set in there. Um, the two names, Ketel Knutson seems to be the other job. The other, the other name, sorry. Uh, he's currently at Bodo Glimt in Norway, has been for three years, won them their first Norwegian title last season, uh, walloped Roma in the Europa League, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. 53 year old, he's never managed outside of Norway. That for me would be a little bit of a red flag that he's never managed outside of Norway. But look, I, I don't know enough about him. I don't know much about his style of player ending. So he'd be a mystery coming in. Um, but it seems like him and, him and Frank Lampard are the two that may well fit the, the, the two spots that Ornstein had referred to. Um, maybe Dean Smith is now a wild card because he's available. I just, I think Lampard would be a really poor choice. I really do. Others pin mentioned Steve Bruce, uh, Russell Martin, Mark Robbins, all former Norwich players, Hodgson. I, I just don't know. Let's, let's leave Uncle Hodgie to retire. Let's not drag him back again. Um, Norwich's decision is more about who do they trust or who do they want to bring them back up next year than who do they want for the rest of this season. This season is going to be a learning ex- exercise. So maybe that's where Lampard makes sense. But it's a big decision. It really is. And it won't be one they'll take easily. I can't imagine the Farka one was easy for them to make. There's there's a lot of good blood there. A lot of strong relationships have had to be severed to make that move and get rid of him and his coaching staff. Uh, they hope apparently to appoint a manager in the next few days. So we'll just have to keep our eyes on that one. Uh, moving on then. Brighton won. Newcastle United won. Um, one of the most undeserved points anybody has taken all season. Newcastle's first 60 minutes in this game were a disgrace. An absolute disgrace. A shambles. 
Poor in all areas, no effort, no desire. Brighton went 1-0 up on 24. Uh, Trossard penalty after Kieran Clark, who, him being a Premier League footballer is just a miraculous thing. Uh, Clark took down Trossard in the box. Trossard stepped up and finished with a plum. Newcastle did fight back late on, it must be said. 66 minutes, Isaac Hayden makes it 1-1. And from there, it was anybody's game, really. I was very disappointed in Brighton. I thought they really lacked a cutting edge in this game. Uh, and they almost lost the game. Late, late drama at the Amex as Callum Wilson streaks through on goal. No Brighton defender close to him. Robert Sanchez comes herring out of his goal and clips the heels of Wilson. And down goes Wilson outside the box. Straight red card for Sanchez. Referee didn't see it initially and allowed play on, but thankfully VAR stepped in. Sanchez stepped uh, sent off. Lewis Dunk had to go and goal, which was, you know, it's always comical when an out- outfield player goes and goal. It, it just never looks right at all, no matter who they are. Um, it was the dying seconds, though, when Newcastle failed to to register an effort on target. But this is a, a big opportunity lost for Brighton. This was three points they should have taken. This is a dreadful Newcastle team. And a win would have put Brighton above United into sixth. And I think would have been more resembling where they deserve to be right now. This is a, a bad draw. I'd mark this one down as a bad draw. For Toon, it's a good point. And it's two points from the last five games. It keeps them off the bottom of the table. But Eddie Howe is set to be appointed today. He may have already been been appointed. It's a it's a colossal job. It really is. I I don't like their chances of staying up, I have to say. Winless through 11 games, 5 points, 12 goals scored, 24 conceded is absolutely shocking. For a flat-back 5, for that style of football, it's shocking. Um, Nothing really to be impressed about with Newcastle. And Eddie Howe has an enormous job on his hands. Uh, If he keeps them up, this will be as big an achievement as, as anything he did at Bournemouth. But if they go down, he'll be well suited to bringing them back up. Like I was saying with Lampard at Norwich, that could be the idea here. Look, we, we may well go down. If we go down, we go down fine. We'll buy our way back up. And how has proven before he can manage very well in the championship. So, you know, this was just their first hour in this game. My God. Talk about wanting to pull your eyes out of your own head and boil them so they didn't have to watch any more of a game. This was shocking. Absolutely. They couldn't complete a five-yard pass. They looked like a bunch of lads that had never met before. Like it was some random Sunday league game and half the team were away on a stag do. And they were ringing around saying, do you know anyone that could play? And some fella brought his, his cousin's best friend and some other fella brought... You know, a lad he picked up hitchhiking on the way to the game. It was just car crash. And Brighton really should have taken advantage of it. But I was disappointed in Brighton in this game. 
Um, we'll take a break there. When we come back, we'll get into the Manchester Derby and the four games from Sunday. So I'll see you in a minute. Right, folks, welcome back. So quickly, we'll run through the early kickoffs on Sunday and then focus on the two big games from the weekend. Everton nil, Tottenham nil. Tottenham should have won this game. Tottenham had the better chances in this game. They didn't manage a shot on target, which was ridiculous considering Emerson, Real and Regulon had great opportunities. Uh, Kane had a half-decent chance as well, but couldn't work the goalkeeper, couldn't get anything on target. Lacelso's effort from the edge of the box had Jordan Pickford scrambling, but wasn't good enough to find its way in. I thought Everton looked a bit better in this game than they have recently. They were a bit more solid, a bit better defensively. Uh, Fabian Delft playing in midfield seemed to help make them a little bit more solid, even though Fabian Delft isn't particularly good. Um, but they thought they had a penalty when Richarlison went down under a challenge from Lloris, but it was correctly found that Lloris's hand had got the ball first and it was overturned. Look, it stops the rot for Everton, and that's about all it does. You know, they've been on a really bad run, three defeats in a row, but this this stops that. This allows them a little bit of breathing space now heading into the international break. They're 11 in the table. They've no wins in five, and Benitez has his work cut out. Uh, but they will get Cal- Calvert-Lewin back soon. They will get Dukure back in due course. They'll get Digne back. They'll get... Oh, Dini is back. Dini played the weekend. They'll get Yerimina back, is what I meant to say. They'll get Yerimina back, and that's a big help. So you get your most dominant centre-back, your box-to-box midfielder, and your number nine back. Those things will all help Rafa Benitez and Everton. Now, we've see, we're already starting to see, I think, the early signs of Conte's impact with the wing-backs playing so high and so aggressive, the midfield looking a bit more purposeful. Defensively, there's still a couple of issues, and, and he's going to have to have to sort out something with Eric Dyer because the guy just can't play. He just can't play at this Premier League level, not as a centre-back, not if asked to do anything other than head it and kick it. He could maybe play in a, in a deep block, for a team that's not going to be in any way adventurous, but he is he is badly exposed in a team that want to be progressive. Uh, shout out to Mason Holgate, who came on, uh, gave away two free kicks, completed zero passes, and then got himself sent off. Uh, in an attempt to clear the ball, he kind of slid through the challenge and absolutely walloped Heusberg, left him in a heap on the ground. Um, that was an impressive cameo by Mason, who will now find himself, I think, out of the team for probably three, four games. I think three-game suspension, and Raffle will probably punish him a bit after that. Uh, disappointing from him. He is capable of better. Leeds won, Leicester won. This was a fairly enjoyable game. Both teams played quite well. Leeds went one up with a Rafinha free kick, which I don't think he was sure. It's one of those ones where he's put it in an area where if no one touches it, it might go in. But the keeper can't dive to save it in case someone touches it and it goes in a different direction. Clever from Rafinha. It went, worked out well and went in. Two minutes later, basically straight from kickoff, Harvey Barnes 
cutting in from the left, bent the shot into the top right corner. Great goal. Great, great goal. And good to see him back among the goals, back doing what he does best. I really like Harvey Barnes. I think he's a very good player. Uh, Rodrigo had a great chance for Leeds. Jack Harrison had maybe the miss of the season from about a yard and a half out, but couldn't get his, le- his legs sorted, and it bounced off his knee and went over the bar. Yui Thielemans had a good chance for Leicester, um, but a heavy touch kind of took the ball away from him. I thought Melier did well to react there. Leeds were probably the better team over the course of the 90 minutes and probably deserved the win, but credit to Leicester. They stuck it out. They fought hard. They worked hard for their point. I think in other games this season, Leicester probably would have probably would have caved in and lost that one. But you know, it's good to see a bit more bit more fighting spirit about them. Uh, they're twelfth level on points with Everton, but a negative two goal difference, which is really not good considering the attacking talent they have. A uh, lot of work for Brendan to do over the international break. A lot of work for Brendan to do. Um, Arsenal won Watford nil. Arsenal played well and deserved to win. But again, I mean, it's like the Norwich game and the Burnley game. And it it does just, it's all a little bit fugazi. It, It seems like fool's gold. It doesn't seem like this is real. They're fifth in the table now, only two points behind Liverpool. But if those teams played... You can't imagine that Arsenal would do anything other than take a thumping. Same if they played City, they got a 5-0 thumping. Same if they played Chelsea, they got a 3-0 thumping. I just don't see them... I don't see this as being real. I think they've had a very favourable run where... Let's look at the teams they've played. Norwich nailed to the bottom of the table were appalling at the time and it took a fluke to beat them. Burnley, second bottom at the time. Arsenal didn't play particularly well. Took a great goal from Odegaard. Spurs were a catastrophe at that point. And they've since sacked their manager. So that'll tell you how their season's gone. They got outplayed by Brighton, outplayed by Palace at home, beat Villa, who've just sacked their manager they beat Leicester, who were out of form. So they haven't played any good team in form. And the two good wins that you would say, three good wins, Villa, Tottenham, and Leicester. You should be beating Watford. You should be beating Burnley. You should be beating Norwich. Two of those three are going down, and Burnley will probably finish in about 17th or 16th place. So you should be beating them. But you got outplayed by Brighton and Palace, the two teams who are in form. Of your three big wins, you absolutely deserve to beat Tottenham, no question. It was a good performance. You did deserve to beat Tottenham. Sorry, you deserve to beat Villa. It was a good performance. Put that to one side. You deserve to beat Tottenham, but, but, you made hard work of it. And a referee's decision and Aaron Ramsdale not having quite as long arms, and it's 3-3, or if Harry Kane isn't half-arsing it, he might score that big chance he had. Against Leicester, you needed 
a bunch of ridiculous saves from Ramsdale. I think four 1v1s plus the one from the free kick. Like he's not always going to play like that. He didn't play like that this weekend. He made a, quite a big error that almost led to a Josh King goal. So I look at their run and I'm, I'm wondering what I'm meant to be impressed by other than the fact that it's eight games. Like what else is there there? Nine games, isn't it? Nine games. What else is there there to impress me other than nine games? Nope, next, you're going to Merseyside. You're going to Liverpool. Then you get Newcastle at home. Then it's United away. Then it's Everton away. Then Southampton at home. Then it's West Ham. So in the six games after the international break, we are going to learn a, a whole lot about what this Arsenal team are. Liverpool, United and West Ham. The United are not particularly good either. But we'll learn something from that game. We'll learn something from the game against Everton too because Benitez is a better tactician than Arteta. And if he has his full complement of players back, it wouldn't surprise me if Everton beat Arsenal in that game. So I put no real faith into Arsenal being fifth in the table. Don't score a whole lot of goals. Only 13 this season. Only conceded 13, admittedly, which is, I think, the sixth, joint sixth, joint seventh best defense in the league. Just great. But a lot of them did come in one game against, uh, against City. So maybe we give you a pass on that one. But all things considered, I'm not overly impressed yet. I want to see a lot more. I want to see them against good teams in form. This entire run, they've played Three teams who are currently in the top half. They got outplayed by two of them. Very, very fortunate to draw those games. And the other one was Tottenham. And I would still back Tottenham to finish above Arsenal, especially now that they've changed manager. But, you know, when you're beating four of the bottom five, I mean, you're supposed to beat the bottom five. It's kind of what they're there for. You know? Um. That just leaves us then with the two biggest games of the weekend. So, let's start with the the Manchester derby at Old Trafford on Saturday morning. Manchester United nil, Manchester City 2. This could have been anything. I thought United would sit in, be defensively resilient, and try and spring counter-attacks. I think that's what they, they thought they were setting up to do. They went with a flat-back five, and it was, believe me, it was a flat-back five. Then they had Fernandez, McTominay, and Fred in midfield. And Mason Greenwood up front to do the dog work next to Cristiano. And the issue with that is, while Mason Greenwood is quick, he's not lightning fast. He's not like Rashford or or like uh, Dan James when they had him. So on the counter, he's not an efficient leader of the counter. He's more that trail man who gets himself into central areas and tries to get in the end of things. There were so many problems with this United performance, but let's give credit where it's due. David De Gea saved four big, big chances in the first. Four really good saves from De Gea that if two of them had gone in, it probably would have been a fairer reflection on what the half was. 
Eric Boye had sliced into his own net on seven minutes. Really, really rash. Who knows what it was he was doing, but none of it was good. Um, then De Gea kicks into Superman form from a couple of years ago and starts saving everything that comes near him. The defence at this point looks an abomination. You've got three centre-backs playing really close together. And then you've got your your supposed wing-backs playing as traditional full-backs. And what City did was City lined up with De Bruyne on the right. No, sorry. Gabriel Jesus on the right. De Bruyne as the false nine. And Foden on the left. Now, De Bruyne was dropping back into midfield. You had him, Bernardo Silva and Gundogan kind of rotating between that false nine position. And whenever one of them was as the false nine, the other two would be the number eights and they'd switch sides. And they were absolutely brilliant to watch. City were magnificent in this game, but we'll come to them. Gabriel Jesus stayed really wide in the right and made Luke Shaw mark him. And Phil Foden played really wide in the left and made... Aaron Wan-Bissaka mark him. And what that meant is you had three centre-backs all standing around wondering what it was they were meant to do as City's false nine played five yards in front of them in all the space in the world. Now, what that also meant was that when City attacked, United wide midfielders were having to step out to try and mark Kyle Walker and Joe Kinsale. And what that meant was that City's number eights were then strolling through with nobody anywhere close to them, finding large pockets of space and very much able to just have their way at Old Trafford. Mason Greenwood tried to track back and help out and dig out in midfield. while Cristiano Ronaldo stood up front pouting and we'll come to him. Now, I've always said Ollie's a spoofer. And here's why he's a spoofer. Ollie's idea of changing things in attack is to throw on more attackers. If you're not scoring enough goals, rather than an actual tactical switch, what Ollie will do is he'll add more attackers. When United are conceding too many goals, rather than a tactical switch, what Ollie will do is he'll add more defenders. And this is Ollie's plan. Nothing's working right. We'll add more of this, add more of this. No actual tactical game plan. And you can tell there's no tactical game plan with how United's back three function. The fact that their back three played as three centre-backs tight together and dragged their wing-backs back to cover City's wide forwards. Now, in a real back three, Eric Bailly picks up Phil Foden and Harry Maguire picks up Gabriel Jesus. Or, Harry Maguire picks up Jesus, Bailly tucks in next to Lindelof, and Wan-Bissaka drops on Foden. And then when the ball switches, Bailly moves across on Foden, Lindelof and Maguire are the two, and Shaw drops on to Gabriel Jesus. That's how a back three is meant to function. Ideally, you would want your wide centre-backs up against City's wide forwards. That's ideal then your fullbacks or your wingbacks, they take on City's fullbacks, and then you match up 3v3 in midfield. And then you've got two up front, and they've got two centre-backs, and they're left 2v2 with you, and you're going to back your guys 
to get the advantage there. So in a 3-5-2, you can match up really, really well with a 4-3-3 if you know what you're doing. United have absolutely no clue what they were doing. And the amount of space that De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, Ilke Gundogan and Joao Canseo had to operate in was remarkable. And then you had Scott McTominay charging about like a headless chicken, trying to put out fires everywhere, trying to help everybody, while leaving Rodri with the entire centre of the pitch all to himself. And this is the best Rodri that we've seen. This was, this was an outstanding performance. But he had so much time and space because United were all over the place. And it could have been 4-0 before it was 2-0. The second goal comes from Joe Canseo clipping a ball towards the back post. Luke Shaw, for some reason, deciding to leave it and not clear it. And Bernardo Silva sneaking in, getting a foot to the ball. David De Gea failing to deal with it and the ball ending up in the net. Nobody realised it ended up in the net until Bernardo Silva ran away celebrating. So they go in 2-0 up and there's no way to argue that City don't deserve this. City have been outstanding and United have been shocking. In the second half, City came out and basically taunted United. They knocked the ball around. They made it look very, very easy. They'd attack, then they'd pull back. They'd attack, they'd pull back. It was always that that threat. You know when you see a bully do that thing towards someone that they're picking on where they, you know, pretend to throw a, a dig, maybe jerk the shoulder towards them, a little head fake, and you see the person who's getting bullied sort of flinch or wince anticipating what's coming. That was basically what the entire second half of this game was. Pep Guardiola didn't make a substitution. Didn't make a substitution. Didn't need to. Because his lads weren't tired. Because they played the game at their tempo, at their pace. And made it look so routine. Now Foden should have made a three. Good opportunity on his left foot inside the box. Clips the outside of the post. Just doesn't quite get the right angle on it. But it was so, so easy for City. And you can go through them man for man. And they all played very well. Except for Stones and Diaz who didn't have anything to do. They didn't have anything to do. United didn't really muster anything in this game. They were bad at the back. They were a mess in midfield. Greenwood, to his credit, ran and ran and ran. But he couldn't impact the game. And Cristiano Ronaldo's performance was a disgrace. A disgrace. He stood with his hands in his hips. He walked around. He pouted. He gesticulated. And he was crap. And the problem is, it wasn't just this game. Go and look at his actual performances. There used to be... There used to be a site, I can't think what it's called, but I don't think it's around anymore. There used to be a site where you could watch Premier League games without the goals. It was a, an analysis site. It was a subscription service. I don't think it's around anymore. But you could watch games without a goal. 
without the goals. And you could get a better idea on how the game went and how players played. If you watch Cristiano play, he has been terrible since joining Manchester United. Unless he scores, he offers nothing. Absolutely nothing to the team. And go and watch his performances against Liverpool, against City, obviously, against the weekend, against Villa, against West Ham. Go and watch those performances. They're a disgrace. The man offers absolutely nothing. And for the second game in a row, he should have been sent off. Because the way he jumps in at Kevin De Bruyne, he should have been sent off for that. He should have been sent off against Liverpool for the tackle on Curtis, for the kicking the ball at Curtis Jones when Jones was lying on the ground. He should have been sent off for that. He should be sent off again here. His performances have been a disgrace. And yes, I know he scored nine goals. And it's tremendous. And they've all been go-ahead goals or equalizers. His performances, his actual level of play, has been a shambles. He offers nothing to the team if he's not scoring. He's a liability. He limits how United can play. They can't play a 4-2-3-1 because he can't play up front on his own. They can't press from the front because he doesn't press. And it would be pointless to play because the 4 2 3 one would suit them. Green one on the right, Bruno was 10, Sancho on the left. But ideally you'd put Rashford up front or you'd put Rashford on the right and Green one up front, whichever way around. But they're going to have to play this fella. And he won't press enough to make it work. Can't really play a 4 3 3 because he won't press from the front. You need a presser in that middle row. Makes it very, very easy for teams to play out against Manchester United because he won't run when he doesn't have the ball. They had one shot on target. Manchester United, one. They had two shots on target on their own goal. One the Bailly goal and one Lindelof that De Gea made a great save from. Think about that for a second now. They had two shots on their own goal and one on the opposition goal, at home in a derby. Cristiano had more touches in his own box than he had in the City box. 32, excuse me, 32% possession. 32%. That was after 36% against Liverpool. At least they had four shots on target in that game. This was worse. The scoreline's not as bad. The performance was worse and the gulf was even bigger. City could have won this game 12-0 if they'd wanted to. But Pep just called mercy at half time. So City just toyed with them. It was they were playing different games, different sports. City were brilliant. De Bruyne was brilliant. Bernardo Silva was sensational. Jao Canseo was excellent. Foden was excellent. Gundogan was very, very good. Rodri was the best player on the pitch. Rodri was just different class. Just different class. So much time and space, though. Made it so easy for him. Anyway. Another bad win for United, but news today is that they have no plans to move on from Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. So, at the wheel, Oli's at the wheel. 
West Ham 3, Liverpool 2. Huge win for West Ham and a well-deserved win for West Ham. The better team on the day. Great team performance. Moyes has them absolutely keyed in. Perfect. Tactically brilliant. Commitment, desire, organisation, discipline. Just great defensively. Excellent on the counter. Excellent set pieces. Two goals from set pieces in this game. Some obviously questionable calls. The first West Ham goal, the Cresswell and Henderson tackle. Absolutely, you can argue that those should have gone in Liverpool's favour. And that does change the game. If those things go in Liverpool's favour, it changes the game entirely. But West Ham were good value for the win. Do not look at stats such as Liverpool having 70% possession. West Ham controlled the game. West Ham controlled where the game was played, how it was played and the tempo at which it was played. They let Liverpool have the ball where they were happy for Liverpool to have the ball. Then they took it off them and they sprung counter-attacks. Rice and Suchek were brilliant. Uh, Kurt Zuma was outstanding. Might be the best I've seen him play. Dawson came on early for Agbonna, who'd gotten two different injuries. And, uh, and he played well. The fullbacks were good. I thought Johnson was really aggressive in his work on Mane. Cresswell stuck diligently to Salah. Got a lot of help. They were two and three on one on Salah every time Salah had the ball. The three behind the striker were brilliant. Fornals was the man of the match. Sensational performance. Every second ball seemed to drop to him. Just seems to have this innate understanding of where he needs to be. And it's not just this game. It's every game he's playing now. You watch West Ham clear the ball. He's just there. Ball just drops at his feet. And he's away. And they're countering. And Ben Rama's going. And Bowen's going. And Antonio's going. And they're very, very difficult to stop. And I said before the game, this is one of the best five-man midfield units you'll see. It's five-man midfield attack. It's a four-man attack when they go forward. Five-man midfield unit in defence. Four-man attack when they go forward. They join Antonio. Those three do. But they roll through their shapes, their sets, so quickly, so fluidly. There wasn't one moment in that game where Liverpool really opened them up. Bar the man they had or late on. Liverpool's two goals are worldies. Trent's free kick and Origi's set-up and volley. They're worldies. Liverpool's only real big chance in this game was the, the late Mane header, which I kind of feel like he should have volleyed. It felt like he should have volleyed it. Now, maybe that's just me. But from the Alisson own goal, Fornals on the counter to make it 2-1 after Trent had equalised, and then Zuma's header. I've seen a lot of people criticising Liverpool for the concession of the goals. Allison should do better on the first, there's no question. They took advantage of a, of a glaring f- f- flaw in this Liverpool team for the second goal. It's been notable that Liverpool have not had three midfielders in three midfield positions for a bunch of games. And West Ham noticed that and just played through the midfield. Um, and the Zuma goal, the, the only person to blame is whoever let Zuma make that run. It's not Trent, it's not Allison. It's whoever let him make that run. West Ham were great value for their win. They absolutely deserve this win. And it is a sign of where they are now under David Moyes. I don't think they'll finish top four. But they proved me wrong last year. And they may well do it again this year. They've got four wins in a row. They're the most informed team in the Premier League. 
the only team who's taken more points from the last five games than them is Chelsea. And that's one point more. 23 goals scored is the third best in the league. 13 conceded is something they need to work out a little a little bit, but they're getting there. They are getting there. This is a really good team. A really, really good team. Who will be in the European places again this season, I think. What a job David Moyes has done. At the start of last season, I really did think they were going to have major trouble. And they ended up sixth, two points off the Champions League spots. And this season, they're right back in the mix. Right back in the mix. I've done more on this game on the Daily Red podcast, which you can find on AnfieldIndex.com. It's about 20, 22 minutes today. It's just me talking mostly about this game. Uh, so if you want to hear more on that game, go and listen to that. It's more from a Liverpool perspective, that one. I think for this, I would just want to give credit to West Ham. I really do. I just think they were brilliant. They controlled the game. They dominated where it was played. They allowed Liverpool to hold the possession. They allowed them to take pot shots. And they were never really troubled. Name me one good save that Fabianski had to make that wasn't routine. One. Liverpool scored two worldies. That was it. That was it. Two worldies. West Ham were really good. Really, really good. Now, there is an article on the BBC website which is asking the question of can they win the league? The answer is no. The answer is no. And people have said, oh, but what about Leicester? The league was really weak. when The, the year Chelsea won it under Mourinho and the year Leicester won it, the league was garbage. The Premier League was garbage those two seasons. They're the worst seasons in the Premier League history. This This West Ham team, as good and all as they are, are not going to win the league. It's as simple as that. They're not going to win the league. They're not going to get more points than Chelsea, Liverpool or City over the course of 38 games. They're Tactically, they're as good as anybody. Talent-wise is where they get caught a little bit. There's good players in the team, don't get me wrong, but there's not one great player in the team. There's a couple of mediocre players in the team. Goalkeeper, the left-back, Most of the rest are good to very good. There's nobody great in the team. Chelsea, Liverpool and City all have great players. A number of them. If you watch if you watch City play against United, it looked like they had 11 great players. Same thing when Liverpool played them. West Ham also don't have the squad depth. They've got some really good squad players, but they don't have the squad depth throughout. And an injury to Antonio would completely torpedo them. And we know at some point he's going to miss a run of games. Plus, they're still in the Europa League. That's going to wear them down over the season as well. But credit to Moyes. I really do think it needs to be said. He has done a magnificent job since taking over there a second time around. It would be great if they got fourth. It genuinely would. He would deserve it. They would deserve it. But I just, I can't be can't praise them enough. The way they, when they scored and set back into their 4-5-1 and then sprung to 4-2-4 as they countered, 
The way they press is really clever. It's like incremental pressing. Rather than try and force Liverpool back 20 yards with their pressing, they try and force them back two and three and four yards. They slot into a 4-1-4-1 and just push you back a little bit. They don't try and push you over. They just try and push you back a little bit. And as you move back, they step forward. Then they do it again and again and again. And all of a sudden, you've been pushed back 20 yards and you haven't really noticed and no space has opened up. A lot of teams, when they press, they try for that big press and they try and push you right back. And if you're good enough on the ball, you can play through that press because they will leave an opening and all of a sudden you're behind them. West Ham don't press like that. West Ham press in increments. There's no gap. It's all very well coordinated, all very disciplined. And if they feel it's not working, they just sit back and they wait and they wait and then they do it again. And everything is done with purpose. Everything is done with discipline. Liverpool couldn't find passing lanes because of how well West Ham blocked them off. One of the best performances I've seen against Liverpool in the last three or four years. Genuinely. Outplayed. Outfought. Outcoached. Outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. And credit to David Moyes, like I say. Well-deserving of his win and well-deserving of third place in the league. Um... Right, we'll finish up with David Ornstein's column came out this morning. So the big bits of news in that. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's future is allegedly in the hands of Joel Glazer. I don't know that Joel Glazer knows that he owns Manchester United Football Club now, but, you know, he's somewhere out there in the ether. I don't see Oli going anywhere. Not while they're still in the mix for top four. I don't see Oli going anywhere. Pochettino is the one I think they would make the move for if he became available. I think if PSG sack Poch, I think United will go all in for for them. All in for them. And just bin off Oli and his staff and go for Poch. But other than that, who else is out there? They've just let Conte go. He wasn't a great fit anyway. Ten Hag has a contract. I don't know if he'd be willing to break it mid-season. Lupetegui the same. Potter the same. Yes, it's Manchester United, but it's mid-table. A lot of these guys will look at it and think, right, long-term reputation here. If I walk mid-season, go there, and it doesn't go well, and I end up having to go back to a a second-tier club, are they going to be willing to take me on if I'm the type who walks out mid-season to go for the big job? A lot of these guys are thinking about careers rather than just the, the here and now. Mark Overmars is to set is set to stay at Ajax after a link to the Newcastle Sporting Director role. Um, they should have been appointing a Sporting Director before they appointed a manager. That's just what it is. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold is set to pay for 250 children to play football in a local league. So the Trent Alexander-Arnold League has been set up for five- and six-year-olds in Toxteat and West Derby. 
Ah, this is great. This is great. He's putting a substantial amount of money and guaranteeing it for the future as well uh, into giving kids the opportunity to play football. I think that's brilliant. I love to see players giving back to their community. Southampton's players have been told they don't have to report to the club's training base this week. Coach Ralph Hasenhutl has given his squad permission to work from home after they won three out of four Premier League matches since the previous international break, drawing the other. To turn the season round in, in this spell of time. Um, really, really good. He, he apparently cancelled their time off in the last international break because they failed to win any of their first seven games. And he's given it to them this time. So credit to him. Credit to him rewarding the players for their efforts. Uh, Chris Wilder is taking over as manager of Middlesbrough. He was appointed at the weekend. Um, the Athletic understands Wilder has started his preparations. He started his preparation before Neil Warnock was moved out. It does appear like Borough just kind of kept Warnock so he could get the record for most games managed. It seems like they were always going to sack him. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was the right decision in fairness. They're bottom half, aren't they? Like 12th to 13th or something. So it made sense to move on from him. Um, apparently Jed Spence is giving Warner Paul, Wilder rather pulse for thought, uh, rapidly emerging as one of the outstanding fullbacks in the championship. Didn't I say all last season and in the summer that a Premier League club should have signed him? I didn't understand why Villa Loan, or why uh, Borough loaned him. I know he'd fallen out of favour with Warnock, but still. He's by far the most valuable player in your squad. Um, one of the stranger cider effects of COVID-19 has been a shortage of top-class chefs to run their kitchens for Premier League clubs. Several top-flight sides have found that senior catering staff changed professions or drifted away during lockdown and furlough, leaving them with vacancies to fill in the dearth of candidates. It is a first world problem, obviously, but corporate facilities in the Premier League are so high-end and expensive these days that clubs have been battling to make sure that the prawn sandwiches are luxurious as they can be and the fillet steaks are cooked to perfection. Yeah, yeah, first world problems indeed. Eddie Howe has been confirmed as Newcastle United manager. Uh, I don't like the appointment. I don't particularly believe in Eddie Howe as a as a man to go into a firefight. That's what I don't believe in. I think he's a good coach. I just don't think he's right for this job. I think he's always also going to know he was second choice. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how he does. Best of luck to him. I hope he turns it round. But I have a feeling he'll begin to turn it round next season when they're in the championship. Uh, Gareth Crook's team of the week then. Uh, Tim Krul in goal. I mean, De Gea, I know we kind of threw in the second goal, but De Gea was excellent. But fair enough, fair enough. Joao Canseo, he's picked a 3-4-3. I hate when he does this. He's gone 3-4-3, and he's picked Joao Canseo as the right-sided centre-back, despite him playing as a left-back. I, I really don't like when he just throws players in and goes, oh, three defenders, that'll do. Like, may, at least make it a team. At least make it a functional unit and players in the position they played in. 
But Joe can say, oh, I don't have an issue with him being in. Uh, Ruben Diaz, I'm not sure what he did to warrant being in. He didn't have any defending to do at all in that game. Um, I would be far more likely to say that Mark Wehi of Crystal Palace, who I thought was brilliant against Raul Jimenez, should be in. Kurt Zuma, absolutely no problem there. Bernardo Silva and Rodri, no problem. Though Bernardo Silva as a right-back causes me a headache. Matthias Norman, great goal. Good pass to set up the penalty opportunity. No problem there. Emil Smith-Rowe, I thought, had one of his quieter games. I don't think he deserves to be in um, on the left wing. But he did score, which is why Gareth has put him in. Uh, Rafinha, no problem. Fornals as the number nine. Uh, Fornals played in midfield. Fornals should be the one in midfield over Smith-Rowe. Fornals was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I do th- kind of feel like Declan Rice maybe should have been in. I thought he had a really good game as did Suchek. But he's gone Rafinha, Fornals and Barnes. So no strikers. No strikers at all making the um, the Garth Crooks team of the week. Which, you know, I mean, it is it is his team. But nonetheless, I, I, I'm sure you could have found space for somebody. I'm surprised Matthias Vidra didn't make it in uh, just because he scored. I suppose if you look at the games, there wasn't really a standout striker performance. Bar, I did think Michael Antonio played well. Um, but you could have picked... Like, you could have at least picked Bernardo in the false nine role, where at least he spent some of his afternoon on... Or some of his, his kind of mid-morning on... Um, early afternoon? Early afternoon. His early afternoon on Saturday. Um, but no, he's picked Fornells. He played largely as a 10 or a left winger. Um, I don't have a problem really with the individuals. Smith Rowe, I think, is a questionable one. I wouldn't have Diaz there because he'd nothing to do. He had nothing to do. He could have gone home, you know, brought his wife out for dinner, for lunch as it would have been, come back, gone to the club shop, bought some, you know, Manchester United merchandise, lit it on fire, called the fire brigade, have them come in and put it out, answered questions, given a statement, gone and had a shower, put back on his kit, strolled back out, nothing would have happened. He wouldn't have missed anything. United were so poor. Shocking. Absolutely shocking how bad they were. Um... That's basically it, folks. That is basically it for today. Um, Tomorrow, then. Right, so obviously no games now for the rest of this international break. No games for two weeks. So for the rest of this week, I think what we will do is maybe take a bit of a State of the Union and go through all 20 teams, the strengths, the weaknesses, how they've done, good wins and bad results. Maybe do five a day for the next four days and see how we shake out at the end of the week. Uh, might leave, might not be a questions day then this week, but um, I think that's what we might do for the for the week. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much me for today, folks. So I will see you all tomorrow. Thank thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed your weekends, and I'll see you see you tomorrow. Bye bye.
Social Podcast Network.